According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. And this morning we are up to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. can't believe the blue sky is out there. I almost want to go outside and preach. Yesterday with thunderstorms and rain and nasty and did an outdoor wedding. Um, could have used this weather yesterday, but our Lord's in charge and that's the best part. All right, Isaiah chapter 10. Woe. Woe to those who enact evil statutes. Actually, we covered the first four verses already. So let's pick up with verse 5. Woe. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. This chapter is a message of woe. So we're going to open up with a word of prayer, ask God the Father to humble us to receive the word implanted. It is not a happy message, but it's one that we need to understand. Join me in prayer, please. Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you, Father, that your word provides for us all things necessary for life and godliness. I thank you that your word is comprehensive and complete, that it is sufficient for for all of our needs, day by day, moment by moment, and for all eternity. Father, I thank you that your word um, has the uh, encouragement messages, the positive uplifting messages, but also, Father, the rebukes, the woe messages. And I thank you that your word doesn't hide the truth, doesn't puff us up and tell us we're okay when we are walking in darkness or when, we are, when we're not okay, Father. The world has plenty of that, but your word does not. And I thank you for the plain truth of your word. I ask that we might be humble to receive it. Oftentimes, Father, the difficult messages are uh, a real challenge and a real test. Are we going to humble ourselves to receive the word implanted? I pray that on this day, as your word goes forth, that we would receive it in the spirit in which it is being sent. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we got a uh, context for chapter 10 that we've been leading up to all uh, all this time in these previous chapters, and that is the, uh, the big bully on the block is Assyria, all right, the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria... Uh, it was, in, the, in its time, something to be greatly feared. It was a dominant superpower of the ancient world. And uh, Israel was very much afraid of Assyria. Judah, the southern kingdom, was very much afraid of Assyria. Uh, but they tried to bargain with Assyria, and that was their first mistake. They tried to use Assyria to protect them from some other problems that they were having. And this we've talked about in chapter 6, in chapter 7, remember, uh, the Lord challenged the king to ask for a sign, and uh, the king wouldn't get asked for a sign. He said, oh no, I don't want to ask for a sign. And so the Lord said, all right, then I'll give you a sign. And we have the beautiful, a virgin will conceive and bear a son message from Isaiah chapter 7. Well, all of these chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10, we're dealing with the threat of Assyria and the impending invasion. And this is what's going to happen. Assyria will come sweeping in, and they're going to take the northern kingdom away. Ten tribes of Israel gone because of the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes. It's only the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that remain. And they're going to be fearful of being swept away. Now in the process of this, God has a message for Assyria. He says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. And he's going to start speaking to Assyria and saying, don't get full of yourself. Just because I used you to discipline Israel... Don't think that's because I love you, all right? Don't think that's because you're so special I couldn't help myself. Just the opposite. In fact, the Lord selected the most evil, wicked nation he possibly could to be the tool in his hand to discipline the Jewish people. And they were selected not because they were so great, they were selected because they were on the verge of being destroyed anyway. So grab them and use them to discipline the Jewish people. And we'll, we uh, hopefully will get a handle on this because... If we don't, current events may start confusing us, watching the news and observing why is it that our government is becoming a curse to the Jewish people, and then why is it that our nation is facing the consequences that we're facing because our government has become a curse to the Jewish people. Continuing on then, 
Assyria is a rod and a staff in his hand. We'll, we'll have other tools mentioned here in a moment. He says in verse 6, I send, it, I, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend. See, this is what it's designed for, but it's got other plans. Nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it uh, is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So Assyria has its own plans and doesn't realize they're in the hands of God being used for his good pleasure. For it, Assyria says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? Um, so, you know, boasting over their cities, boasting over their, their regional cities are practically world capitals. We would say, is not uh, Round Rock like London? Is not Pflugerville like Rome? You know, we would pick these little weasel towns around here and promote them to world status as, as if they were global capitals themselves, okay? I just offended Pflugerville. All right. But this is the arrogance and the pride that Assyria felt that even their small towns were the pinnacle of civilization compared to the dominant cities of the ancient world. It goes on to say, this is the pride of, of Assyria saying in verse 10, As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, full of themselves and everything they have conquered, and looking at Jerusalem and Samaria, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of, of the, the two Jewish nations here, looking at Jerusalem and Samaria and saying, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? All right. Now the problem with all this pride, well, there's many problems <laughs> with all this pride, but to start with, they, they totally crossed the line when they started looking at Jerusalem and saying, those idols are no different than all the other idols we've ever conquered, all right? Because it's true. There were idols in Damascus, idols in Samaria, idols everywhere that Assyria has trampled, including back home in Assyria, right? Nineveh was full of idols. But when they turn their eyes on Jerusalem, those aren't idols. When they turn their eyes on Jerusalem, they're turning their eyes on the Holy of Holies. They're turning their eyes on the Shekinah glory of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And to boastfully declare that they're going to take those idols spells their doom, all right? Assyria is the tool in God's hands to sweep away the northern kingdom, but it won't be for another 150 years that the southern kingdom will be swept away by Babylon, all right? It's going to be, by then, Assyria is going to be out of the picture, all right? And we know that Assyria is going to be out of the picture because of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son prophecy because of the prophecy of the, of the birth of Maher Shalal Hashbaz and the study we looked at if you were here with us in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 of this book. All right, so we want to learn really three things out of this chapter. First of all, God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. And if God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it, you and I better stop confusing the tool with the hand that wields it, all right? Because God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. Assyria is the tool in his hand. Remember, weapons are simply tools. And so the rod, the staff, the hammer, the axe, all the tools that we have here, we shall not boast in ourselves as tools. Because God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. Now this is verse 5 down through verse 19 in the context of chapter 10. I haven't read that far yet. Uh, we've stopped our reading with verse 11, but this is the principle that we're gleaning out of this first portion of chapter 10. If you lose sight of the fact that you're simply a tool in God's hand, that He uses you but doesn't need you, then you're going to be full of yourself and full of pride and all uh, thrilled with all the great things you have done and totally missing the point of what God is doing in and through you for His good pleasure. Because the Bible says that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God does the work. We need to learn to start getting ourselves out of the way and watching Him do the work that He is very eager to do. Let me grab the rest of these and then we'll illustrate with some other passages. 
Verse 12, it says, It will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Oh, I wish we had time to study the pomp of his haughtiness. This is a fascinating vocabulary thing. We're going to let it go. But God is almost done with his purpose for using Assyria. All right. Now, Assyria is not yet done with what they think they're doing. Assyria thinks they're conquering the world. Assyria thinks that they're building the biggest empire that that anyone has ever seen since uh, Nimrod first established Babylon, right? Assyria is absolutely full of themselves, and they don't know how done they are because God is almost done using the Assyrians to accomplish his purpose. So here is what he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, okay? Like a boastful pastor might say, uh, because I'm such a great pastor, I built this building, or some stupid stuff like that, right? No, it's not us that's doing it. By the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this, for I have understanding. I have removed the boundaries of the peoples. I have plundered their treasures. Like a mighty man, I have brought down their inhabitants. And it's all about I, 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 I. How arrogant is that? How evil is that? That's satanic to the core. He says, and by the way, we're going to see, but before the end of this hour, who is the one that establishes the boundaries of the nations and maintains sovereign control from Alpha to Omega? It's not this guy, all right? It's not the Assyrians. It's the Lord God of heaven. And we'll uh, see that before we're done today. Uh, verse 14, my hand reached to the riches of the people. Peoples like a nest, and as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Well, isn't he great? All right. But now, verse 15, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, right? Or a tail wagging the dog, all right, if you want to use that imagery. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. It's going to be demonstrated that it wasn't you, it wasn't your soldiers, it wasn't your armies, it wasn't your wisdom, it wasn't your glory. It had nothing to do with you other than you were picked because you were so wicked and God was waiting to destroy you anyway. So he picked you to send you against the Jewish people so he could destroy you after that. We have the uh, understanding of it here. All right. Anyway, the rest of this goes on down through... uh, down through verse 19. Uh, so there's wasting disease that's going to come. Uh, under his glory, a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. He will burn and devour his thorns and briars in a single day. He will destroy the glory of his forest and of his uh, fruitful garden, both soul and body. It will be as when a sick man wastes away. So much for your soldiers. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down, all right? You're, you're, you're so proud of your military. You're so proud of your forces. They're going to dwindle to such pathetic numbers that even the youngest child in this room could, with their fingers, start counting the number of soldiers you've got there uh, on the battlefield. So there's the rebuke. God never confuses the tool with a hand that wields it. And this is true in the book of Job. This is true uh, that David understood this principle when God rebuked David in this capacity. And then, of course, Assyria is our example today. Job, David, and Assyria all illustrate this point. Job, David, and Assyria all illustrate this point. And we better get a handle on this because I think sometimes we use tools also, but we use tools in a devious way, a a carnal way. We use tools so that we can avoid the blame and say, well, I didn't do that. All right. Well, you did. You just manipulated things so your hands were washed clean, but you did it. You're the one that impelled it to happen. That's the David example in 2 Samuel 12, 9. Before we get to that, though, we've got the Job example because this is God's viewpoint himself. This is God's viewpoint himself. And I hope we can all get a hold on this. All right? Job 2, 3. We're familiar with Job, right? The first two chapters and all the uh, back and forth here with Satan and the accusations. Job is a righteous man. Job did nothing to deserve what happened to him in chapter 1. 
And yet, Satan uh, made a dare and, and taunted the Lord and said, well, he's only serving you because you give him good stuff. If you, if you hurt him, then he'll stop worshiping you. And uh, Satan, who used to be in a prophetic office, is not much of a prophet anymore because uh, he's totally wrong on this. All right? Satan uh, says, uh, put forth your hand now in Job 1.11. Dares God and says, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. He even uses God's kind of language when he uses surely, right? God says, surely you will die, surely this, surely that. Satan starts to employ this and says, he will surely curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, what you want to keep in mind here is God is not touching Job. God is giving Satan permission to do what he's doing. All right? And then Satan goes out and does it. Are we clear on this? Now, in chapter 2, what does God say? Job, uh, Satan comes back and he reports back in. And uh, in chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Very similar language to chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now notice, this is the most important part. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, me, for me to ruin him without cause. You incited me against him, so that me, so that I would ruin him without cause. I think often we overlook the fact that God claims responsibility for everything that happens to Job, including what he permitted Satan to do. God still takes ownership over what he permitted Satan to do because he permitted it. And as far as God's concerned, it's not the tool in the hand that's doing the work. It's the hand that wields the tool. And so if God permits Satan to do something horrible, like he does in chapter 1 and chapter 2 here, or like maybe he does in our lives in whatever Angelica attack we come under, don't confuse the tool with a hand that wields it. If God has permitted angelic conflict to reach your life or your home or your marriage or your kids or your whatever, if God has permitted it, He's in charge. And thank Him for it. Thank Him for it. Don't confuse the tool with the hand that wields it. God is still in charge, absolute sovereignty over everything we deal with every single day. So there's the example of Job. We have the example of David in 2 Samuel 12, 9. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 9. This is the, uh, the aha moment when Nathan the prophet exposes David's adultery and his murder. David was a murderer. David should have been put to death. Adulterers were to be stoned. Murderers were to be stoned. He was worthy of death twice over. And he knew it. When uh, the prophet Nathan shows up and tells this story, teaches this parable about the, the man and the poor little ewe lamb, all right, and uh, David's anger burned greatly against the man. Okay? This is like the King George and the Ducky story from VeggieTales. I, uh, I want to start singing the song now, but... Um, David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he learns that man deserves to die. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And that's the point. All of us deserve to die. We're all sinners falling short of the glory of God. We all deserve the lake of fire. But thank God, in grace, somebody else takes our payment, takes our penalty, that we might have eternal life. So Nathan then says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. See, this, this is the exposure. You are the man. The whole story was about you, David. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. I who delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel. I gave you the house of Judah. And if that would have been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you... Here's the, here's the point, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite 
with the sword. Notice, he used a tool, he used an instrument, he, he organized events so that they would pull away from the battle at a key moment and he would be left uh, at, the, at the hands of the fellow soldiers there uh, at the wall, manipulated things through Joab and the other soldiers. Nevertheless, who's the guilty one? Who ordered the hit? Who's accountable for what the underlings have done? David is. David is the murderer. So if you use a tool or you use a, you know, it's not a, it's not a defense against murder if you say, I didn't kill the person, the gun killed the person. Well, who fired the gun? All right. <laughs> God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. And this ought to be a great humbling thing for us. All right. Because if God chooses to use us as his tool, we can be thankful for that. We can be humble for that. But maybe we ought to be um, a bit more mindful of, well, wait a minute. What if he's using us as a, cool, as a tool of cursing? Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I want to be his tool for blessing. I want to be his tool um, for, for glory, his tool for positive things. I want to be the tool in his hand that gives the gospel and leads people to Christ or the tool in his hand that preaches the word and builds up the flock. That's the kind of tool I want to be. But he's got other kinds of tools too. He's got other kinds of tools where he uses you as a negative example to warn other believers, all right? So other believers look at you and the train wreck of that life and go, oh, I don't want that, okay? But guess what? That's a tool in God's hands too. As other believers watch your divine discipline, they watch your instability, they watch your, um, the judgment that God has placed you under, that becomes a tool in God's hands too. So I would encourage each one of us, let's avoid that and let's be the positive tool. Let's be the appropriate tool in his hands, the tool for blessing, the tool for, uh, for glory. Keep in mind, the uh, God's selection of a nation to curse Israel, it is not a positive thing for that nation in light of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. See, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 is an eternal promise. So when God selects a nation to curse Israel, that is not a positive thing for that nation. Assyria should not be boasting. In the next generation or in the next century, Babylon should not be boasting. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the example of that. He's walking around on his roof. He's all full of how great he is and all the great things he has done. And yet he's a tool in the hands of of God. So don't think it's great if he selects you for this purpose. Uh, Genesis 12, are we familiar with this? You better be. Goodness. It's foundational. Maybe you're not. So just in case, let's look at it. Genesis 12. It is one of the most fundamental promises in all of the Bible. Is his selection of the Jewish people. He set apart Abraham. He set apart Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He called the Jewish people to be his covenant people on the face of this earth. To be the earthly nation, theocracy, in the sight of God that would have a testimony to every Gentile nation around them. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. What kind of faith does it take to leave your homeland and go to a country you've never been to before? And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Here's the big part. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Okay? Then it concludes with, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is where, when the seed of Abraham dies on the cross, the provision for redemption is made for all of mankind. But as it relates to the blessings and the cursings, to the seed of Abraham... He he has promised, I will curse those who curse you. So what do you think? When it comes time to chastise the Jewish people, does he choose a nation that's godly or a nation that's walking well? Does he choose a a, a positive nation? No. Why did he choose Nazi Germany to to do what they did to the Jewish people in the Holocaust? Why has he chosen every nation? Why did he choose... Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella in the unified Spain when, when Castile and Aragon, when they were married together and merged together. And, and then what happened? 
the Reconquista, they, destroyed, they, they drove out the Muslims. What else did they do? They expelled the Jews. All right? You, you look at the beginning of the end of the Spanish Empire right there. Why does he select these people to curse the Jews when he's made promises that everyone who curses the Jews is going to be cursed? All right? He doesn't pick the good nations to do it. He picks the wicked nations to do it. The ones that are slated for destruction anyway. Uses them as the implements of his discipline. Remember, discipline is a, is a love application from a father who loves his children. What child is there whom his father does not discipline? The book of Hebrews says, the child whom his father does not discipline is the child whom the father does not love or does not admit, does not claim. The, the child that the father denies and says, that's not my child. I don't claim that child. All right? So if you're without discipline, you're a bastard in that denial that God disclaims you. He disciplines his children, and in earthly terms, he disciplines Israel. He holds them high. That ought to get everybody's attention. If God is willing to send Assyrians against Israel, what's he willing to do to us? (laughs) Right? Do we think we're entitled to some kind of special treatment? If he will send Assyrians against the Jews we better make sure that we are right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the point. Never confuse the tool with the hand that wields it because God never does. All right, the second part of this chapter then. Verses 20 and following. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped. See, there's going to be remnants. There's going to be survivors. As the northern kingdom was swept away, a whole lot of folks fled to the south. They got right with the Lord. They, they went down to the kingdom of Judah. Every tribe had representatives in the south. There's no missing ten tribes, all right? Those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Do you ever turn to God as a last resort? Do you ever get busy with prayer after you've tried everything you could handle? <laughs> And then your fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh option, you know, depending on how stubborn you are. At a, at a certain point, you just quit, get, you give up on everything you've been trying to do. And you take it to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I should have come to you in step one. <laughs> I should have come straight to you at the very beginning. I don't want to rely on the world's methods. I don't want to rely on secular solutions. I don't want to rely on political machinations. I don't want to rely on financial shenanigans. All the things the world turns to. I don't want to rely on any of that. They will rely truly on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And the promise of a remnant. This has been the message of Isaiah going all the way back to Shir Jeshub. A remnant shall return. The little boy that Isaiah took with him to rebuke King Ahab. A remnant will return. A remnant will return, it says, verse 21, verse 22, For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. Now, the Jewish people have never been a high population. They've always been just a tiny, tiny fraction of a fraction of the world's global population. But even if they were to somehow populate and repopulate and all that and get you know, babies and generations, if they were to become the dominant population of the world, it doesn't matter. It would be a bare remnant that will be brought into the land. A bare remnant because only those that, that receive the, the salvation in Jesus Christ will be entering into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. We have a decreed destruction or, or a determined decreed destruction, if you want to make DDD out of it, all right? A decreed destruction. It says in verse 23, a complete destruction, one that is decreed. The Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Here too is where we would have to stop our Isaiah series and spend about eight weeks to, de- to detail, first of all, the divine decrees, the protocol plan of God for the ages. How about then we have to detail the prophetic destiny of Israel. The prophetic destiny of Israel, including Antichrist, including the abomination of desolation, including everything spoken of by Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. All the prophets all have to be brought into focus for this study. 
and we can't do any of it today. <laughs> All right, I can list some verses for you. I can point you some directions. We got some notebooks in the hall if you really want to get more detail on it. Because there is a prophetic plan for Israel. And God has been following that plan ever since he established Israel. So, we have a, uh, a decree. We have a destruction. This is the second thing we want to glean out of this chapter. Israel has a decreed desolation coming. There is a decreed desolation coming. And this is, uh, I, just, I love this actually, because you see, the things, uh, the eschatological prom- uh, promises, everything yet future, we don't have to be afraid of any of that. Satan's got all his big plan and program. Satan's going to unveil his antichrist. Satan's going to do all these things. You don't have to be afraid of that. Obviously, because in the church, we're not even going to be here. But beyond that, because whatever Satan plans, it's God's plan that's being brought forth. No different than what we saw a minute ago in terms of Assyria. Don't confuse the tool in God's hands with God's hand. And when Satan unleashes his plan and program, who's still in charge? God's still in charge. Even with the abomination that causes desolation, don't be afraid of that. God's still in charge. And it's remarkable that Hollywood movies, they, 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 they make movies, that, you know, Armageddon is some kind of doomsday thing, right? The end of the world scenario, whatever. Wait a minute. Armageddon's the greatest day in the world. It's the day of Jesus Christ's victory. It's the day when he throws down Satan. It's the day when he throws down Antichrist and false prophet. It's an entire campaign of warfare where Jesus Christ victoriously conquers this fallen world. I'm not afraid of Armageddon. I'm looking forward to it. You know, the last war I went to, I went through, I went through a very mortal. At risk of being shot, at risk of dying. Armageddon, we're going to be immortal. Armageddon, we're going to be no more death, no more dying, no more pain. We're going to be resurrected, glorified, immortal. Think how fun it is to go to war when you're immortal. Swords can't touch you. Bullets can't touch you. All right. Israel has a decreed desolation coming. And what it is, it is God's judgment upon their faithlessness. God's judgment upon their faithlessness and then extending to the whole world because the whole world is what he used to curse Israel. The whole world turns against Israel. Was that Satan's doing or was that God's doing? Never confuse the tool with the hand that wields it, all right? So judgment begins where? Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. It's going to start upon Israel because of their faithlessness. But it will then extend to all the Gentile nations for turning against Israel. And that's what we see in these verses here. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Now, what is a remnant? Sometimes I wonder... Can we attach a number to it? What is a remnant? Is it like a tithe? Is it like a tenth? I think it's less than that. When you start to watch the judgments in Revelation, you start to see a third of the earth is killed, a third of the earth is killed, a third of the earth is killed. And then even within that final remainder of survivors is still a remnant. It's a pretty small number compared to the original starting point at the beginning of the tribulation. A remnant is not the majority, nor is it even a particularly large number. It is actually quite a small number, and that's the point. The Lord had to cut Gideon's army down to a a, a tiny little fraction of a number so that they could claim no credit for anything they accomplished. That God received all the glory for the smallest army that Gideon could lead up against the enemies there in that chapter. Verses 21 and 22, we see the remnant that's here. You may multiply like the sand of the sea, but it's only a remnant that's going to return. And we had uh, the previous reference to the remnant in Isaiah 1.9. If you were with us way back nine, nine weeks ago when we started this book study, a remnant shall return. The promise of Shir Jashub. Remember in Isaiah 1.9, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. How many survived Sodom and Gomorrah? That's not a lot of folks. But God left them a few survivors it's going to come back again in chapter 16 isaiah 16 14 
But now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded, along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. <laughs> right? Not good to be a remnant in that classification. Joel 2.32, Zechariah 13.8. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but these are good passages. Joel 2.32. Daniel, Ezekiel... Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Somebody stole Joel. There it is. All right. Remember, Joel 2 is this great day of the Lord chapter. All of the locusts, all of the sun, moon, and stars, all of the wrath, all of the blood, all the fire. The powerful chapter. And yet, there is a remnant that's promised. It will come about, this is Joel 2.32. See, Verse 30 says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Is that something to be scared of? Only if you don't belong to him. Okay. For the tribulational uh, unbelievers, yeah, they're going to be scared. They're going to be climbing into the holes and burying themselves underground and everything they can do to hide. But it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the context for this promise. Or delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors. Notice though, whom the Lord calls. No unbeliever is going to be rescued. Only believers will enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So that's where the escape will come from. Finally, then Zechariah 13, 8. I wonder, I, I really believe, and I, I don't know, um, I think that these prophets were neglected, greatly neglected by the Jewish people. And uh, the Lord was trying to teach things to his disciples from these passages. They didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it. Peter and James, those guys, they didn't want to hear the Lord talking about how Zechariah had to be fulfilled. Didn't want to hear it. But Isaiah, uh, Zechariah 13 is the prophecy that uh, related to his rejection and different things. Oh, goodness. Verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. The shepherd was struck. Jesus Christ went to the cross. And his disciples scattered. In the garden, when he was arrested, they all fled. Peter kind of followed along at a distance and then denied the Lord three times. Jesus quoted this prophecy and said, I am getting arrested tonight. And Peter said, no, that's wrong, over my dead body. Far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to you. I'm not going to let this happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How are you going to stop the plan of God? Why would you want to stop the plan of God? You're an adversary to the plan of God. That's why he called him Satan. He said, Scripture must be fulfilled. Do you want the prophet Zechariah to be a liar? It says in Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. He's trying to teach them from that verse in the upper room and they don't want to hear it. Notice though, uh, when he does bring them, here I think we have a remnant defined as one-third because the pattern that happens here, verse 8 says, it will come about in the, in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And even the third though has to still be brought through the fire. I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. That's what it takes to humble Israel for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that is going to humble them and prepare them for the millennial kingdom. So if you stop to think about a two-third destruction rate and one-third coming through, if that holds as a pattern, then we have an idea for what uh, kind of a number we can put to the remnant, all right, as it relates to these things. 
A complete destruction is decreed. A complete destruction is decreed. Now this, thankfully we've done studies in Daniel before. We've done studies on the uh, desolation of abomination. We've done studies on the coming Antichrist. These verses are going to be key for you. Starting here in Isaiah 10, 23, we've already seen it in chapter 6. Remember the chapter when the Lord said, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And the Lord said, great, here's your first message. And it was not a happy one, okay? It was a message of judgment. A destruction is decreed. It'll come back again in chapter 24. Really, the whole block from Isaiah 24, 25, 26, 27, that whole stretch of Isaiah, we're going to be there 14 weeks from now, all right? We're going to be in what's called Isaiah's Apocalypse. Isaiah or Isaiah's Little Apocalypse or Isaiah's Apocalypse. Chapter 24 through 27 is a lot like the book of Revelation in, in literature, in genre, in style, in message. And it contains an awful lot of information about this complete destruction that's decreed. Likewise, Jeremiah 4, 7, a complete, 27, a complete destruction is decreed. Daniel 9, 27, a complete destruction is, de- uh, is decreed. God is in charge and he has not missed a day yet. I'm going to save some time and not read those Isaiah or Jeremiah references because we're doing an Isaiah and Jeremiah series. We'll get there when we get there. But let's look at Daniel chapter 9. And at least pay attention to the calendar. Daniel chapter 9. See, God is not slow as some count slowness. We're just not always privy to His calendar. And even the parts He tells us about, we realize that there are gaps. We realize that there are delays. And those are good delays. Daniel 9, paragraph begins in verse 24. Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people in your holy city. Do you know this passage? You familiar with this passage? Okay. I know some of you are. You've had this in class. All right. Um, This is the divine calendar for Israel. This is Daniel in captivity. He knows that the 70 years are over. They should be going back to Israel. And yet they're still not repentant. They're still wicked. If if Daniel was God, he wouldn't bother bringing them back. (laughs) Right? But Daniel's not God. God's faithful. He told him 70 years, he's going to bring him back after 70 years. He said, but don't worry about the 70 years. Let me give you a more important message. And he tells him about 77s. 77s. And these are 70 periods of seven years. Every one of those years is a 360-day year. All right? Not a 365-day year like we're accustomed to. A 360-day year. Times seven, times 70. And we've got a calendar we can start counting on. And it says, uh, your people, your holy city. It has nothing to do with the church. It's Israel, it's Jerusalem that's in view here. Verse 25 says, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven and 62. That is seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. We have a calendar. We know when this decree was issued. We can start to count the days. And then after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Those days ended on Palm Monday when Jesus Christ walked into Jerusalem or rode into Jerusalem humble and riding on a colt. Those weeks were done. We're now in between week 69 and week 70. It's been more than 2,000 years, but we're still in between week 69 and week 70. The 70th week has not yet happened. That's still future. So after, notice now the prince who is to come. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So if you do your homework in Isaiah 10 about desolations, you've got to come here and understand what the calendar is all about. He, the coming prince, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The final 70th week has to be wrapped up. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed 
is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Wow, that's 10 minutes of what takes weeks to study. But there, there you have it, okay? If you want more, there's a Daniel notebook in the hallway. There's a Revelation notebook in the hallway. A complete destruction is decreed. But why is it decreed? It's decreed because God needs to unfold His plan for Israel. And Israel needs to be humbled. Israel needs to look upon the Christ whom they crucified. And it's going to take this kind of affliction to bring them to that point. There's more in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. I'm just going to have to pass by that. There's more, particularly when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. That is so huge. Matthew 24, the message of Jesus is critical. Because if you listen to the liberals today, liberal theology today tells you that this was all done before Christ. The abomination of desolation was before Christ. They tell you that all these prophecies of Daniel were Maccabean in their time setting. And it all happened when, when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes killed a pig on the altar in the temple and, and the Jews rose up and rebelled. And they tell you it was all finished, it's all done, don't worry about it, don't think of it as prophecy. Well, Jesus thought of it as prophecy. And Jesus comes along 200 years, 160 years after Antiochus Epiphanes and says it hadn't happened yet. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through uh, Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Jesus Christ says that hasn't happened yet. That's waiting until the tribulation. That's waiting until the end times. So you can believe the liberal theologians out there or you can believe Jesus. That's who I'm sticking with. Okay, I'm going to believe what Jesus said in Matthew 24. This prophecy is still future. It has not yet happened. You can get that out of Daniel 11 and Matthew chapter 24. All right, so big big ideas. Big ideas. Remember what was the first big idea? God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. There are some smaller points in between, but don't lose the big ideas. God never confuses the tool with the hand that wields it. And then secondly, Israel has a decreed desolation coming. Desolation coming. God will be judging Israel. But do we want to be part of that judgment? Do we want the United States of America today to start afflicting the Jewish nation today? No, we do not. We do not. Because we would put ourselves under a serious judgment. Under Babylon's judgment, under Persia, Greece, Rome. Why did all those empires rise? Why did all those empires fall? Forget what Edward Gibbon wrote, all right? Read what God wrote. God's the one who controls these things. And that's our third main point. God remains in complete control of human history. The rise and fall of every nation depends on Him and Him alone. God remains in complete control of human history. The rise and fall of every nation depends on Him and Him alone. He is in total control. Verses 24 through 34 here of Isaiah chapter 10 speaks to this. As well as some other passages I'm going to give you here in our final remaining minutes. Why are we in the United States of America? Why is this not the Republic of Texas? Why is this not the Confederate States of America? Why is this not Tejasi Mexico? Did I say that right? Why is this not Mexico? Why is this not Spain? Why is this not Comanche territory? And then whoever the Comanches took it from? And then whoever they took it from? And whoever they took it from? Okay. Everybody gets all buggy about, ooh, we stole this land from, from who? From whom? From the people who stole the land from the people before them. From the people who stole the land from the people from before them. And it's not stealing anyway. With, re- with respect to the plan of God, with the rise and the fall of nations, with respect to their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, God remains in control. Why aren't there any more Hittites around? I, I, I really miss the Hittites. Why don't we have any Hittites around? I mean, Uriah was a, the Hittite. a great guy. We need more of him. But the Hittites are gone. All right? Atlantis. Whatever happened to Atlantis? Okay? Hmm. All right. 
Um, as far as the rest of this, you can read this on your own in Isaiah 10, verses 24 through 34. But understand that God is in charge. So do not fear the Assyrian. Do not fear. It says in a little while, understand God's in control. He's holding the calendar. Anyway, there's, there's uh, great encouragement in uh, the rest of those verses. Let me give you some principle here. See, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn this the hard way. I hope that we can learn this the easy way. We don't want to learn this the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar had to spend seven years with the mind of an animal till he could come to his senses and wake up and realize that God is in charge, not us. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that the Most High God maintains absolute sovereignty in the angelic and human realms. It's the whole story of Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. And then, you know, that's one way to learn, but I recommend the easy way. The things that we fail to learn in Bible class, the things we fail to learn in obedience to the plan of God, uh, he still wants us to learn them, so he just finds another method to teach us, and he teaches us through our divine discipline. He teaches us the hard way with respect to what we need to learn. But in Daniel 4, we're told again and again and again and again. Okay? See, Nebuchadnezzar is so full of himself and all of his greatness, all the great things he has done. Okay? He's walking around on his roof. Stay off the roof. All right? He's walking around on his roof. In verse 29, the royal palace of Babylon is walking around on the roof, reflecting and saying, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built? as a royal residence by my might, the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty. This is so similar to the, the boasting we saw Assyria do at the beginning of this hour, right? I did this, I did this, I'm so great. To Bob be the glory, great things he hath done. All right? No, it's to God be the glory, great things he has done. And interesting, and while the word was still in the king's mouth, in verse 31, God shuts him up. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're done. He has to learn. And what does he have to learn? He has to learn that the Most High God is in charge, not you. Backing up to verse 17, we see the command, the decree. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whom He wishes. He sets over it the lowliest of men. Why do we have the president we have? Why do we have the governor we have? Why do we have the mayor we have? Why do we have the whatever? Fill it in. If they are in authority over you, who put them there? Don't think for a minute that, ooh, we have the power of the ballot box. It's the will of the people. We do this. We do this. No, go back and remind yourself the hand of the tool. It's the hand that's in charge, not the tool. So he bestows it on whom he wishes. He sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 25, Most highest ruler over the realm of mankind, he bestows it on whomever he wishes. He puts the kings in place, the governors in place, the presidents in place, the mayors in place, whomever he wishes. Verse 32, you will be given the mind of an animal and grass to eat until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 34, he finally woke up, Nebuchadnezzar woke up, and he said, the Most High. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's the one that's in charge. Kings come and go. Empires come and go. Who's still in charge? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. You know, politicians think they can, they're kingmakers. They think they, they have all this power. They can make decisions for the people who are kind of stupid anyway, so we'll just make decisions for them. But what about the angels? What about the invisible realm? You've got a handle on the universe while you're at it? God's got a handle on both the invisible realm and the visible realm of all existence. He's in charge. And we can be thankful for that. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. You know, every nation of humanity lives upon the earth within the temporal and, spa- and spatial, should say, spatial, temporal and spatial boundaries that God decrees. Spatial, S-P-A-C-I-A-L. Time and space. Time and space. God decrees. Israel is not the only nation with a land grant. Israel is not the only nation that has the boundaries established by God. 
It just so happens that Israel is the only nation that has Scriptures written to them that outlines those boundaries. But God has boundaries for every nation. And He will establish those in the Millennial Kingdom and on the New Earth. Oh my goodness. All right, real quickly. The dangerous part of the hour when I start talking far too quickly and I misspeak on occasion when I talk too fast. But in Genesis 11, verses 8 and 9, what does he do? He divides the nations. This is the Tower of Babel. This is where God takes all of humanity and all the threefold divisions of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and then he creates his own 70 divisions of Gentile humanity like the 70 elders of Israel, 70 divisions of Gentile humanity, and he scatters them abroad across the face of the earth. And you don't have to believe in some kind of an ice land bridge or something with a bunch of primitive cavemen walking across from Siberia into Alaska and then down into Canada and down into Texas and wherever. All right? If you accept the fact that God distributed the people, he scattered them worldwide. All right. You're familiar with this. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. God moved them. How did people get to the Western Hemisphere? God put them there. And uh, so they stopped building the city. Therefore, the name of the city was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And he invents all all of the Gentile languages of humanity. I believe Hebrew was the original language, but be that as it may, whatever Adam's language was, he then created all the other languages upon the face of the earth. I got a marvelous book by a rabbi called uh, The Origin of the Speeches, and it's about, uh, picking on Darwin, of course, but it's it's about the non-evolution, the simultaneous creation of every language on this planet pretty fun to read. All right. Um, Deuteronomy 32, there are boundaries and there are divisions of the Gentiles as well. Deuteronomy 32, 8, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man and set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's why I believe there are 70 divisions of Gentiles to match the 70 divisions, the clans of the Jewish people. Uh, Job 12, 23-25. God's in charge. Don't ever forget, God's in charge. Is Job before Psalms or after Psalms? Before Psalms. Alright. Job 12, 23-25. I've known this all my life. I've just gotten rusty lately with the computer software. It makes it too easy. All right, Job 12, 23 says, He makes the nations great, then He destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then He leads them away. He deprives the intelligence of the... Uh, yeah, here's our politics. He, describes, he deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people. Why are the politicians so stupid? Your nation's under God's judgment, that's why. He makes them wander in a pathless waste. They don't seem to have any direction. They don't know where they're going or how they're going to get there or what else is going on. So they grope in darkness with no light. See, the purpose for having a nation is so that the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ can be proclaimed in freedom. To grope in darkness with no light, he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Finally, Acts 17, 26. New Testament, book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Get to Romans, you've gone too far. Acts 17, 26. Paul is preaching his sermon on Mars Hill. He's in Athens. He's looking around and he sees this altar to the unknown God. He says, let me tell you, here's the God that's very noble. He's very nearby. He doesn't need your food. In verse 26 says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. We're all Adamic. You can't be a racist if you understand the Bible. You cannot, it doesn't matter. White, black, doesn't matter. All right? American, Mexican, doesn't matter. Ukrainian, doesn't matter. Russian, doesn't matter. We're all Adamic. We're all descended of Adam and Eve. We're all saved by the last Adam. Okay? 
But he made from one man every nation on the fa- uh, of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Notice now, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. When does America rise? When does America fall? God's in charge. What about our boundaries? God's in charge. Notice, though, that they would seek God. Remember that groping around in blindness? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. God will keep a nation in place so long as there's enough light. In other words, believers preaching a gospel. If, if our nation loses that pivot, are we guaranteed a preservation? We need to keep preaching the gospel as we keep the light on. God remains in complete control of human history. The rise and fall of all nations depends on Him. Thank you, Father, for this hour together. Thank you for this time in the book of Isaiah. Thank you for being in charge. Oh, Father, I love the fact that you're in charge and I'm not, that you have a total plan, that you're working your plan together for the glory of your Son. I thank you, Father, that your plan is achieved in perfect timing, not too soon, not too late. In so many ways, Father, it is just a delight to humble ourselves, to be the tools in your hand, and then boast in what your hand has done, because we claim no credit for ourselves. We're simply the tools in your hand. Thank you for uh, all of these blessings, Father, and just give you the praise and the glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.